The following content is brought to you as a part of our Equip Study Series at Ashland Avenue Baptist Church in Oldham County, Kentucky. In this study, we will look at the true heart of Christ for sinners and sufferers as we read and discuss Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. We exist to treasure and spread a passion for the supremacy of Christ in all things for the joy of all peoples, and we pray that God's grace among us would spread beyond us to the benefit of anyone who happens to listen. For more information about our church, go to ashlandoc.org. Thanks for listening. All right, well, uh, welcome everybody to week one of Gentle and Lowly. There's only six weeks, uh, and so usually when we start a study, it begins like it is tonight. There's so many people here. So glad to see you. And then by week six, they start dwindling. And so I'm praying that um, we all can make it for the most part uh, till the end. And I think that if you're like me, this book will probably keep you uh, interested in in this study all the way to the end. Um, We read this as a staff a year, well, it's probably been longer than a year ago now. Um, and ever since then, we've thought we are going to share this with the church, and that became easy when the publisher of this book sent me an email and said, we have free cases of this book if you would like to give it away, and so all these copies that you have were donated by Crossway um, with the agreement that we study it, that we give it to our church and that we study it together. Um, And the reason for that, and I'm sure that's not cheap by Crossway, um, but the reason for that is because they believe that this book has a message um, that we really need to hear. I took Josiah to his doctor's appointment today, and I was walking in, and uh, I had the book in my hand because I was reading through it, and one of the doctors was walking out that we know because we used to go to church with him. His doctor's in Lexington. Uh, and he stopped and said, I think that's one of the top five books I've ever read in my life. Uh, and that's the kind of, everybody I know who's read this book has those, those kind of responses to it. So I don't want to hype it too much, um, but at the same time I do, because I think the content of the book, you can't hype it enough. What the book is pointing to, the truths that the book is pointing to who is Jesus, and we're going to get into that. So how is it going to go? I don't really know the answer to that. I'm not going to stand up here and talk for an hour every Wednesday, uh, as much as that may surprise you. <laughs> um, and so I really, my, my plan is tonight, probably there'll be more talking because I really want to kind of introduce it. Uh, but then I'm wanting us to kind of divide, and I have discussions, questions planned as well. Uh, And I think that it's in that context that I would just like to let everybody hear from each other and and see how you're responding to the book and share uh, some of your own testimony with one another in a way that would mutually edify the rest of us. And so that's the goal. Um, but before we jump in, I'd like to, to pray and ask God just to bless our study. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your kindness and your mercy. Lord, we thank you that in the middle of a week, um, where the, Lord, there's so much happening. And, and I'm sure that the effort from the people in this room to get here um, was great. And to get their kids dropped off and to get dinner in and all those things... But Lord, here we are, now we're here, and I pray that for this next hour, Lord, that you would help us rest in Jesus, Lord, that you would open our eyes to behold who he is, Uh, Lord, that we might have an accurate understanding of his heart, Um, Lord, we recognize and confess, Lord, that we often Um, make conclusions based upon wrong criteria and even our experiences from our past. Uh, And Lord, we want to draw our conclusions about who you are 
about who Jesus is, about who the Holy Spirit is, Lord, we want to draw those conclusions from your word. And God, I pray that you would help us to do that through these six weeks. And I pray, God, that you would just do an amazing work through this, Lord. I pray that our church would be grounded better than we ever have in the truth of who Jesus is. Lord, I pray that our prayer lives would be revolutionized because of the correction that this book offers us by painting uh, this accurate portrayal of, of Christ. Um, Lord, and I pray that we would just we would know you in, in truth and in goodness and in justice. And Lord, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so here's the question that I want you to consider tonight. All right, have you ever been around someone or in a relationship with someone that was so unpredictable that you were sometimes afraid to approach them because you weren't quite sure how they would respond? Think about that. Have you ever been in a relationship with someone that was so unpredictable, that person was so unpredictable that you were hesitant sometimes should I talk to them? Should I approach them? Or, or maybe it, it controlled the fear of how they might respond, controlled how you approach them. So you're always so careful to make sure that you said the right words, that you didn't, that you didn't make a wrong move, that you didn't come in the wrong spirit, right? Or you didn't bother them at the wrong time. You know, I think that's a question that every single one of us can relate with. We all have been in relationships like that, haven't we? And I think if we're brutally honest, we can also admit that we're often sometimes like that ourselves. We're that person that maybe other people are afraid to approach. I was in the car just the other day with Elias and Sam, and I had just gotten some disappointing information, and that information was just in my head. It was all I was thinking about. And I was driving down the road, and and. They knew I was bothered, and Samuel began asking me, so how was your day, Dad? And it just got on my nerves that he was even asking me that question. And I, re I, re I responded sort of harshly to him, like annoyed, just sort of irritated, like, yeah, I don't want to talk about my day. And then I, I came to this realization that my negative emotions were being, he was being blamed for them, even though he had nothing to do with it. And I think that's so often how we are. And hopefully, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit of Christ, those tendencies that I have will gradually change. And I pray that, I'll, I pray that there'll come a day where when I'm upset about something, I won't take it out on the people around me. I pray that in this life, I can get to that point, right? But here's the thing. No matter how much we grow in that area, the problem that we have is that every single one of us tends to project our own experience and our own disposition on God. Right? If you've ever had that relationship with someone who may be sort of harsh towards you when you mess up, you, you will probably have a tendency to think that God is also thinking like that towards you when you mess up. Or if you feel a certain way or respond a certain way, we often make the mistake of thinking, well, if I get mad about this, certainly God is mad at me when I do something similar. That is the problem that this book is trying to correct. So this book, Gentle and Lowly, is a book that is seeking to answer the question, who is Jesus? Who is He? Really? And, and he makes it very plain that the answer to that question doesn't come by looking inside of ourselves. It doesn't come by examining our relationships with our loved ones. It doesn't come by, by our experience with our own fathers, our own mothers, the answer to that question has to come from His Word. We have to let Jesus reveal who He is to us. 
This is an interesting book to me because if I told you, hey, I have a book here and this book is about Jesus, what would you assume would be the main topic of that book? Anyone? What Jesus did. Yes. Which is important. And so in no way is this book minimizing what Jesus has done, but this book is simply pointing out that, hey, there's more to this story than just what he did. We also are called to know who he is. Now, those things can't be disconnected because what Jesus does flows naturally out of who he is, right? There is congruence in his life. His heart of compassion is what drives him to do the things that he has done. But I think it's valuable for us to spend some time just asking that fundamental question. Jesus, who are you? Jesus, how do you look at me? How do you feel toward me? I'm not making it up. What does your word tell me about these things? How does your word answer these questions? So that is what this book is about. How does Jesus feel towards us? Now, does that make anybody feel uncomfortable? Some people probably does. Yeah, I think sometimes when you start getting into emotive language and applying that to God, <laughs> we, we often kind of have an issue with that. You know, that doesn't fit our systematic categories so well sometimes. And that's one of the things that I really appreciate about this book is that the author says at the outset, we're not looking to systems, we are looking to the Word of God. And church, I've said this to you before, I know last year when we were talking about some themes related to this, uh, as we were going through the book of Amos, one of the things that I, that I mentioned was that when, when the Bible, when we have a hard time believing things the Bible says because we're holding on to some kind of system, that's a problem. The Bible has to be able to correct our systems, right? There's nothing wrong with a system, but the system is always subservient to what God has revealed in His Word. And we've just got to be aware of that. And so that's one of the things that this book is doing. So that's what this book is about. The second question is, who then is this book for? Who should be reading this book? If it's about the heart of Christ, if it's about who He is, His disposition towards us, who then should be reading it? And I know of no better way to answer that question than to simply read a quote from the introduction and let the author answer that question. And so right there on page 13, this is what the author says who should be reading it. And you just tell me if you don't fit into what anything I'm about to read, then you can leave. I mean, you're free to leave. You don't have to. You can stay, but you can leave. Because you can just conclude that this is not for you. So this is who it's for. The discouraged, the frustrated, the weary, the disenchanted, the cynical, the empty. It's not for Kyle. See what he's doing? Those running on fumes. Those whose Christian lives feel like constantly running up a descending escalator. Those of us who find ourselves thinking, how could I mess up that bad again? It is for that increasing suspicion that God's patience with us is wearing thin. For those of us who know God loves us, but suspect we have deeply disappointed Him, who have told others of the love of Christ, yet wonder if, as for us, He harbors mild resentment, who wonder if we have shipwrecked our lives beyond what can be repaired, who are convinced we've permanently diminished our usefulness to the Lord, who have been swept off our feet by perplexing pain and are wondering how we can keep living under such numbing darkness, who look at our lives and know how to interpret the data only by concluding that God is fundamentally parsimonious, which just means stingy. So easy to understand until that last word, but... That God's stingy, 
that he, that he doesn't want to give us grace, right? That he's holding it back. I've got mercy, but I don't want to. I'm hesitant to. Well, if I have to. So how will this book do this? Well, I've already alluded to that, but the author tells us there in the same introduction, the safest way to theological fidelity is sticking close to the biblical text. Amen? So that's what we're going to do. But here's the thing. You're going to see this, and you saw this in the first three chapters. He's, he's sticking close to the biblical text, but he's not afraid to call upon some teachers from the history of the church to help us understand what the Bible teaches. Does that make sense? So in the same way that, that we listen to the preacher or the teacher teach God's Word to us, there are people throughout history that can serve in that way as well, who wrote books and sermons that have been printed and preserved. And so we can continue to, to look upon teachers even when they're dead. And particularly, he is going to draw heavily upon a certain group of teachers. The Puritans. Who were the Puritans? Well, let me ask you this. What do you think when you hear the word Puritan? Okay, better than me. I can't measure up to that. It's kind of derogatory most of the time it's used, isn't it? When we say, oh, the, those Puritans over there, like they think they're better than us, right? And I, and I want to, if you're going to benefit from every time he drops the word Puritan and not think those thoughts, then I need to correct you on that. Because that's not really who the Puritans were. We think Puritan, people who were trying to obey every jot and tittle of the law, so much so that they didn't emphasize grace at all. And it was just about legal obedience, living pure lives, and it wasn't about the gospel, and it wasn't about Jesus. So I think for some of us, the, the label Puritan is kind of synonymous with Pharisee. <laughs> and that's a mistake. Because historically, the Puritans were not legalists. Historically. Now, there probably were some Puritans who were legalists, just like there's evangelicals today who are legalists. Church members who are legalists. But in the, on the whole, we need to understand who this group of people are. And the reason why I want to spend just a little bit of time with this is because this book is going to draw on Puritans in every chapter. Thomas Goodwin, Richard Sims, John Bunyan, all of them, John Owen, all of them would be considered Puritans. And many of the, the other people who who he's going to quote, people like Charles Spurgeon and B.B. Warfield, they were in line with the Puritans and read the Puritans and enjoyed the Puritans. So we need to ask the question, who are the Puritans? And so I want you to go back in your history timeline all the way back to 1517. 1517, a Catholic monk by the name of Martin Luther wrote a document called the 95 Theses, and he wanted to debate these, these points of doctrine because he had big critiques of what was happening in the Roman church. He was reading the Bible. He was, he was translating and studying and teaching the book of Romans. And he realized that what God was teaching about the gospel in the Bible is not in line with what the church was teaching. And so Martin Luther started the Protestant Reformation. Before 1517, there was the church. And that was it, the church. Now, granted, there was an east and west split, but I don't want to get into all of that. So there was the church, and that was it. If you were a, a Christian, you were part of the church. That was it. There was only one. 1,500 years, that's it. You're in this church or you're not in any church. Well, beginning with Luther... He, began to, he realized that that church, the church, has gone astray, that they are promoting a gospel that's not biblical. It's not a gospel. It's not good news at all. It's, 
It's, it's, it, it's embroiled with politics and political power, and it's enslaving people. And so the Protestant Reformation was birthed. And then that, began, that spread all the way through Europe. And I'm, gonna, I'm doing like big-time cliff notes. There's all kinds of things I'm not going to be able to tell you. But it, it eventually gets to England. And there's a king there, a guy by the name of King Henry VIII. And he's married to a lady who can't give him what he wants. He wants an heir, a son. And she's not able to do that, so he wants a divorce. Because he wants to marry somebody else, because he's a good Christian king. So he goes to the Pope, and he asks the Pope, Hey, I need you to annul my marriage so that I can marry someone else and have an heir, so that when I die, you know, that's important for a king to have an heir. Well, the Pope refused. And so King Henry VIII said, Fine, I'm joining the Reformation. The, the Catholic Church is no longer going to be the church in this land. And the English Reformation was birthed out of a political issue, a, a desire of a king to have an heir, to have his marriage annulled so that he could marry someone else. So from the beginning, the English Reformation was always a lot messier than the Reformation elsewhere. Though I would argue that the Reformation everywhere else in Europe was messy as well. Well, Henry VIII eventually died. He had three children. He had, he had Mary, he had Elizabeth, and he had Edward. And they were all kind of half-brothers and sisters because he had six wives ultimately. He ended up with six wives. But he finally got Edward, his heir. And so Edward, after he died, Edward was king, and Edward was a child. But Edward was a Protestant. And so Edward, um, you know ends up dying at the age of 15, at which point Edward's sister, half-sister, Mary, who's a Catholic, takes the throne. It's the nickname Bloody Mary. You may have heard of her. She goes through the land and wants to restore Catholicism, and she does it. She puts many people to death. She puts many people in prison in the Tower of London. This is Everything back then was all tangled up with politics, and so all the religious disputes, there's violence involved as well. Mary eventually dies and is replaced by Elizabeth. Elizabeth is a Protestant. So here again, Elizabeth comes in and changes it all again. And she, and this is where the Puritans come in, Elizabeth, who I'm sure at this point the Protestants in the land were very happy. We've got a Protestant queen, but here's the thing. Elizabeth wasn't Protestant enough to their liking. She, in 1559 brought about something called the Elizabethan Settlement, where she established the end of the Reformation, made the Anglican Church the official church throughout the land, and made everyone uh, obey the Book of Common Prayer. This is what will rule our churches. This is what will rule our religion in this land. And there were a lot of people who had issues with that. A lot of Protestants who said the Book of Common Prayer has problems. And some of the things that they objected to was the sign of the, of the cross. See, that was something that had come in from Catholicism, so they thought that it was still too Catholic to give the sign of the cross. Where's that in the Bible? They objected to um, clergy wear, having to wear vestments. They didn't think that that was appropriate. That wasn't spelled out in Scripture. A lot of the traditions and liturgies they didn't agree with. And these people who believed that the church needed to reform further came to be known derogatorily as Puritans, right? You Puritans, right? You, you can kind of sense the disdain. Well, initially, uh, initially that was a, a, ter a term of disdain, but eventually the Puritans embraced the title. Puritans, yeah, you, you better believe we want the church to be reformed more. We want the church to be reformed all the way back to what the Scriptures tell us the church ought to be. And so that's who the Puritans were. The Puritans were Protestants in England who refused to conform to the Anglican establishment. And so they often, 
they, they had, this is where the tradition, another word, the tradition of separatism was birthed, where they were starting churches and preaching outside of that, right? Churches in homes, churches in different places, churches out in a field under a tree, wherever they could gather people. And all the way through that, they're experiencing persecution. They're being imprisoned because it was illegal to preach unless you preach under the authority of the Anglican establishment. And they believed a certain thing, a certain number of things. Some of the things that they believed, they read straight out of Scripture. They believed that they were elected by God. They believed that they were in a covenant of salvation in Jesus Christ, the new covenant. They believed that a Christian should live their lives with visible piety. In other words, you should know that I'm a Christian by my devotion to the Lord. So this was something very important to Puritans. They believed that the society should be reformed. They believed that the Bible was, was God's authority. What came out of Puritanism? Well, there was also a lot of diversity in this movement. There were Presbyterian Puritans. There were Congregationalist Puritans. Yes, there was Baptist Puritans. Though they were kind of despised by the other two, even more. We've always been despised. And so that, so the, and why is that important? Because you are going to see that word Puritan all the way through this book. Thomas Goodwin is Dane Ortland's primary conversation partner. Thomas Goodwin was a Congregationalist Puritan in England who wrote many books. In fact, his collected books are a series about this long. Um, and you're going to see him reference these Puritans again and again, and I don't want you to get a negative reaction every time you see the word Puritan. In many ways, if we were alive, if our tradition was, was around in England in the 1500s, 1600s, we would be Puritans too, okay? <laughs> like that would have been our tradition that we identify with, that had more in common with the way we approach the Scriptures. So where, where is he getting the topic for this book? Well, let's, let's quickly look at the text, and then we'll divide up and, and have some discussion questions together. So Matthew chapter 11. Verses 28 and 29. This is the key passage. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now in the, the first chapter, Ortland begins by saying, that this is the only place in the Gospels where Jesus tells us about his own heart. Can you, can you argue with that? I try to. Can you think of an exception? Is there anywhere else that you know of where Jesus tells us about his own heart? Why do you think that's an important point to make? Why does the author say this is the only place in the Gospels where Jesus tells us about his own heart. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if it's the one place where Jesus talks like this, revealing who he is, then it would seem to be a, a passage worthy of our attention, right? I mean, think about it this way. If, 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 you, if you know somebody who never tells you, never opens up personally about themselves, right? And then one day, after like four years of knowing them, one day they pull you to the side and they say, hey, I really need to tell you something about myself. And they just begin to open up about some, some aspect of, of their heart or their struggles. You would listen, 
You you would think this is significant. This person doesn't typically do this, right? And so that's kind of what's happening here. I mean, Jesus just doesn't walk around all the time saying, I feel this way, I feel that way. Now, we haven't reported how he feels. He had compassion on them, right? Jesus wept. Those things are reported, but they're often reported from the third person. So this is the, the time in the Gospels where Jesus points inward and reveals the state of his own heart. Now, we talk about heart. Ortland tells us what this means. Heart, he tells us, is the animating center of all that we do, our motivational headquarters. Think about it this way. It's the essence of a person. It is the source of a person. It is from the heart that the mouth speaks, right? The, the heart, if your heart is bad, you will have, there will be bad fruit on your tree. Jesus makes these connections over and over again. So, where your heart is, there your treasure will be. Yes, I get, I get that backwards sometimes. But all these connections between the heart and the actions, and so these things are inseparable, but that's what Jesus is talking about. So, so he says here, Come to me all who, are labor, who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly, in heart. So the disposition, the animating center of Jesus is gentleness and lowliness. What does it mean to be gentle? Ortland tells us that this word is translated in other places meek, can be translated as humble. And on page 19, this is a quote, he says, not trigger happy, not harsh, reactionary, easily exasperated. He is the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. So that's what it means for Jesus to be gentle. But he is also lowly, and there's actually a lot of overlap here. Gentle and lowly kind of go together. It's kind of two ways of saying a similar thing. He's gentle, but he's also lowly. But, but Ortland keys in on how this word communicates his accessibility, that Jesus is approachable. He's not hiding from us. He's not running from us. He's not barring us from entrance. He wants us to come to him. It, 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 he enjoys it when we come to him. He only re, the only requirement that he has for us is that we come to him. There's the invitation, come to me. If you're if you're, if you're laboring and if you're heavy laden, come to me. That's who qualifies. That's you. That's me. Have you ever had a burden? Have you ever felt frustrated? You qualify. Sinful? You ever suffered? Ever felt bad? Ever experienced pain, turmoil, anxiety, depression? You qualify. That's all it takes. Come to Him. Wherever you are with your burden, come to Him and He is lowly. He will come down. He will stoop down and receive you. And then He talks about a yoke. And we don't have a farming culture anymore, so He does a good job in the book of explaining that a yoke was the heavy crossbar worn by the ox to till the field. So you would put this yoke on the ox's uh, neck with like a plow behind it, right? You would drive the ox so that he would drag the plow through the field so that you could, you could plant your crops. It was heavy, right? It was a burden. And what does Jesus say? He says, for my yoke is easy. Uh, Ortland says that this word easy could be translated kindness. His yoke is is, is a kind yoke. He says, he quotes, he says that it's basically a non-yoke. That's the point Jesus is making, that my yoke is a non-yoke. What you have to wear to come to me is not burdensome at all. In fact, it saves you. And he uses an, a powerful illustration of a drowning man in the, in the chapter. Do you remember that? It'd be like a drowning man drowning, and you threw him the life raft, and he said, 
this, what do you, don't throw this to me. What am I supposed to do with this? I'm, I'm drowning. Can't you see I'm drowning, right? Jesus is giving you the yoke that saves you. It's not burdensome. It's not heavy. It's light, he says. And his goal is to give you rest. And so the rest of the book is going to be the unpacking of this idea in all these different ways. Um, and so what I have tonight is discussion questions that I want us to do, um, to group together. So, you know, I hope you're okay with interaction because that's what we're going to do tonight. Um, and so if you want to just grab some people around you, this is the part that makes everybody uncomfortable. Um, but I've got several, so I'll just pass them around. I gave him one, so perfect. You know it. Josh, do you want to gather these rows? Yeah, y'all just right here. Breck, how about you? Are y'all one group? Do you, are y'all with Josh? All right, let me go back here.
All right, well, um, we are at the end of our time, and um, I pray that this was uh, beneficial for you, and um, just that we're all, I pray that we will walk out of here worshiping Jesus even more, um, because of our time of reflection on His Word and, and on how He's revealed Himself. And just know, when you go home tonight, when you wake up in the morning, next time you pray, that you're not praying to one who's annoyed by you or who is hesitant to respond to you, but that you're praying to one who delights in you and wants, wants to forgive you, wants to help you, wants to um, take your burdens. So let's pray together. Father, we, we thank you. We thank you for sending us such a Savior. And Jesus, we thank you for being gentle and lowly. Our Lord who stoops down and receives us as we are. And Lord, I just pray that you would shape our hearts through this study. God, I pray that, um, Lord, that we would, that we would never come hesitatingly to you out of fear, but Lord, that this would shape our approach to you for, for the rest of our lives. And uh, Lord, we thank you for the clarity of your revelation, and we thank you for how profound your love and grace is. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.